Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast network, the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. This is EdUp EdTech, dedicated to interviewing leaders at the front end of technology and innovation in education, hosted by the amazing, the outstanding, the incredible Holly Owens. Now let's get to it and hear from your host, Holly Owens. Welcome to a special edition of EdUp EdTech. My name is Holly Owens and I'm your host. And we have an amazing outline of episodes here planned for you. So let's think about this. Most startups fail. This one might too, and that's okay. So we're going to follow the EdTech startup from inspiration to implementation. It's going to be 12 episodes recorded and released once a month. So you're going to follow us throughout this journey. And really the topics that we're going to cover depend on what's happening in the moment. So what are things like, you know, getting your business license, going out and talking to people about what you're doing. So these topics are going to be covered for the next year for you. And I have two very amazing guests that I'm going to let introduce themselves now. So let's, Eric, let's start with you. Hi, Holly. Thank you so much for being a part of this and, and hosting and, and all of this. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Eric Stevens. I am the I'm the one that's trying to start a business. Uh, I'm the one that's trying to that I, I, I left my alt at career that I got after leaving higher ed because of COVID. Um, I left that career so that I could uh, start a software company. And I'm really, really excited about it. Um, and to be able to share my experience, I hope that it doesn't fail. I don't think it's going to, but um, thank you for being along the ride, everybody. That's great. And I am Lindy Letahowski, and I am thrilled to be here. Thanks so much. I've been roped into this conversation by Eric, and I'm super excited uh, to be here in large part because i um, I started, it's now um, over six years ago, I started an ed tech startup called SA Jack. And this past summer in July, uh, that uh, ed tech startup that I started was acquired by a company called Wise, which is where I now work, wiseprep.com. Uh, and before that, I, I was a tenure track professor. So you, you've got the kind of gamut of higher ed uh, here on display. And as Eric and I kind of talk through um, the, the newbie starting an ed tech software company and the still, I still feel like a newbie, but somebody who uh, was able to by hook or by crook have her ed tech uh, software company be acquired this, this past summer and, and has kind of a future beyond ed tech startup land. So you'll get both perspectives as we, we trundle forward over the next 12 episodes. Well, this, this is definitely a great platform to share this information because I know a lot of people think about jumping out of the space like you did, Eric. And if you haven't followed Eric on LinkedIn, his higher, higher ed 
um, you know, look up that hashtag, you know, getting out of academia and just doing your own thing. Um, and Eric's going to share his journey as well as Lindy too. And it's going to be, I've already, just from the intros, I've learned more than I knew before we had this chat. So I'm looking forward to just sitting alongside and kind of co-piloting with you both to hear this conversation. I have my own business too, but it's not an ed tech software business. So I just want to learn, you know, about how you just set everything up. And I know one of the things, maybe we can pull some listeners and see what kind of the questions they have and we can answer those on the show. Um, I can incorporate those into, um, you know, our recordings and get some feedback from them because I, it's not like a normal radio program where you can have live calling. Um, so we definitely want to solicit some feedback from them. So starting off, you know, let's, we want to hear both of your stories because Ed Up Ed Tech is all about sharing your stories. So whoever wants to go first, Eric or Lindy, go ahead. Well, I can, I can jump in first and then uh, Eric's going to pick up because, uh, you know, I think, in some ways, um, you know, he's kind of the linchpin of our conversations uh, these these days, uh, and and we all kind of will will hinge ourselves on that linchpin and, and follow his lead. For me, um, my story began traditionally. You know, I, I um, did the PhD, the postdoc, and then I walked into a tenure track job, uh, and I was very lucky uh, to 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 do that. Um, but I was unlucky in the sense that I was also married to an academic. And so we had the dreaded two body problem. Oh my God, there aren't two jobs in the same city for two people who are, who are married. And so uh, eventually I then said, okay, well, you know, we don't need to both be professors and have a long distance marriage uh, till the end of time. Uh, I'm going to jump out and see what else I can do. But of course that wasn't, that wasn't the plan. You know, my, my plan was to be an English professor um, and so then I had to come up with various alternate plans once I decided that if something had to give, I wanted it to be the job, not the spouse. So uh, on, on that, I um, did some consulting for I'm a bit. sure your husband, I wanted to jump in there. I'm sure your <laughs> husband appreciated yes, you making yes. him the priority. Exactly. It, well, that's it's tough. It's tough. It it's definitely tough. Um, you know, when you're trying to find those types of jobs and where they're at located in the country, but I think COVID has opened it up more, you know, for those remote type positions. Well, and I think too, it's um, sort of, and, and I'll, I'll get back into the, the sort of software part of my story, but to even just go back to the professorial part of the story, um, I think when all of us um, are graduate students or postdoctoral fellows, even though we're engaged in various different acts of imagination when we think of our professional careers going forward, whether that's alt-ac or traditional academic jobs or any combination of the two, it's hard because it's always abstract. You don't yet know. Um, and then it's as your life unfolds. You know, when I started my PhD, like I wasn't married. So I, I didn't have a husband as part of the plan because I didn't know he existed yet, you know, and, and so there are those kinds of things and you don't necessarily know until you land in a particular city, for instance, if that city isn't necessarily the place that you envision being for the next 40 years um, of a career. And, and those are, are very hard things to know until you're in it, or at least maybe other people are smarter than I am, but I didn't have the imagination to be able to see some of those things until I was in it. And then I thought, oh, okay, well, like this isn't the life that I had envisioned for myself. I, I didn't plan to be married and, and live a five hour drive away from the person I finally found to spend my life with. 
Um, and so, so for me, then, as I started to sort of parse through all of those sorts of things and said, well, at the end of the day, if I have my job, but I'm divorced from this person I love, that's not the choice I will make. Um, but at the end of the day, if I have this person I love in a different career, that is the choice that I would make. And again, as you said, Holly, a lot of us are facing different kinds of choices like this um, in higher ed for a lot of reasons, uh, you know, disillusionment with the academy, uh, as well as, you know, the, just this sort of terrible state of the profession as a, a place to find one's profession. So I think, um, you know, at whether or not you're thinking about starting an ed tech software company, I think our conversations cover a lot of terrain that will be familiar to a lot of us who are sort of, um, love the idea of learning and of education and of being dedicated to students and scholarship and making the world a better place, but maybe the formal academy isn't the place to do all of that. And so that was how I kind of came to, you know, being a consultant when I first quit my job and thought, okay, well, if I'm not a professor, what am I? And, you know, consultant is that lovely catch-all phrase, which, you know, is like I do anything and everything and please pay me for it. For it. Uh, and I did that for a few years and, and got to live in the same city as my spouse, which was wonderful. And, and then it was from that that really emerged SA Jack, the academic writing software company, uh, that I started. And then I was its inaugural CEO and it's, you know, SA Jack of all trades, uh, as you will discover, Eric, that honestly, when you uh, start a company, whether it's a software company or any kind of company, uh, you end up doing a lot of heavy lifting. And so uh, I sort of learned everything from, you know, finance to software to business development and, and everything in between and ran that company for, as I said, just under six years. Uh, it would have been six years this past September, but in July, we were acquired by another ed tech software uh, startup, actually, but a startup that was further down um, its financial journey than we were, and, and they had the resources to be able to acquire us, and I joined that team, um, and it's called Wise Prep. And so that's a little bit about the ex-English professor turned uh, ed tech software startup founder turned ed tech software executive now uh, in, in my <laughs> post-academic career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's great stuff. And like so many questions popped in my head, like about imposter syndrome, you know, navigating oh, the God. world when you're, you're, you have those life changes. And I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of that as we progress throughout these episodes, because there's so many different things you have to take into consideration there's sacrifices that have to be made, um, you know, whether that's fiscally or with family or, you know, moving. And I know Eric has part of that story with the moving to Tulsa. So, Eric, let's jump into your story. Um, thank you so much, Lindy, uh, for sharing that. And because I, I feel so invigorated right now listening to it. And I, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted this and I feel like I needed it for myself. And so thank you um, for sharing that story. I, I think I want to share, I want to start um, with, with something, with something that, that you, that you talked about, Lindy was, was this idea of that wasn't in the plan. And then I had to change and I had to go do something different. And I'm the same way. I was never, I was never good at making a big plan and then going and getting that plan. What I was really, really good at, I learned was listening to someone who was smarter than me and then understanding how that um, fit into my own path and then pivot to go to something new. 
Um, and I, and I feel like what has got, what has brought me to this moment right here is that ability to pivot, to go from one thing to one thing, to one thing. And I think that, uh, one of the reasons why I think academics would be good at going out and starting businesses and things like that is because they're adept at going out and doing a lot of different things. I, an academic is a solopreneur. You do your own marketing, your own branding, your own financing. You do so much of your own thing. Now it's just, it's a matter of scaling. Um, I, I finished my, so here's, here's my, my story. I finished my doctorate degree in 2018 and I got a lecturer position at a small university, uh, where my wife grew up around there. We were like, finally, we got to put down our roots and I was there for two years. My wife got a job there as well. Um, teaching, we were both English teachers and then COVID happened and I lost my job. My wife lost her job. Hers, we did not anticipate her losing her job. She was eight months pregnant at the time. Our lease was up. So we moved into a little tiny house that someone gave us a six-week lease. We had a baby in that house. That was our third baby. And then we packed everything up. We owned everything we owned into a storage unit in Washington. And then we moved to Maryland into my parents' basement where I filed for unemployment with a doctorate degree and three children, my wife living in my parents' basement. I was working from my childhood bedroom that my parents had turned into a storage unit that I turned back into a makeshift office. And, and I kind of the, the same motivation for wanting to create, help create a podcast like this, this series is I, I created the higher, higher ed hashtag. Like I wanted to create a community because I felt alone and I didn't know what to do. And I wanted to bring people together and I needed a job and I ended up getting one. I didn't try to get a job in data analytics, but I got a job in data analytics by networking on LinkedIn. And it was amazing. I was able to take all of the expertise that I had theoretically as a, as a researcher, because I'd done the ethical, like my, my research on the ethical use of big data. I'd done that, that thinking work. I just never like played with the tools. And then I had the opportunity to play with the tools and then ask really cool questions about it. And I found I was really, I was good at doing this. And I realized wow, this is a lot of fun. Like, I, like there's, there, there are other things I can do to change higher education and to make impact than being inside higher ed. So I was like, all right, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm going to do now. And then about a year after getting that job, I was facing some frustrations at, at work just with some communication. Um, and then I, and I reached out to Holly and I said, hey, I've, I know what the future of an English department looks like. I know what it is. I've been talking about it since 2016, like when I was at a conference at the International Writing Analytics Conference in Florida. I said, I know what it looks like. And I said, if nobody builds it in five years, I'm going to build it. And then within 24 hours, I like it just, it just hit me. Why am I waiting five years for someone else to build it so that I can critique it? I think that as academics, we like we we look at the adoption of software and we say like, oh, well, there's all these problems with it. You didn't consider this. You didn't consider this. You didn't consider this. And I said, you know, what? you're right. I don't want to make all those same comments about this future of English departments. I want to make I want to ask all of those questions as I build it, because I know the importance of those things. Um, they're, they're more than just surface level kind of um throwaway talking points like they're, they're important things like to have an unbiased algorithm is important to try to obtain i want to do that 
um, I, the, the future of an English department is automation. Like people are going to lose their jobs and it's going to be so sad. I want to build a company that gives people those jobs, that gives people jobs that are losing them. I want to train them. I, I, want, I want to build something beautiful. Um, that's why I'm here today because I know that I have done the ethical work of what it means to deal with data and with identity and with assessment and writing. I've done all that and I, and I don't discount other companies. I just, I don't trust them yet. I, I, I want to build it. And, and if I'm being completely honest, I was having a conversation with my wife the other day. Like she is, she's just, she's so good about getting, earning money. Like she's great about getting jobs and doing those jobs. I, I would rather try to convince someone to give me funding to build my own company than apply for another job. I just can't do it anymore. It's just not in me. I know I'm not going to be happy there because I've done it and I wanted more. And I just, I have to, I have to try. Well, I had this, I, that rings so true. I had this conversation with another um, uh, sort of consultant in the alternative academic space. Uh, she's a career coach and a good friend of mine now. And back in the day, she was talking again about um, empowering PhDs in alternative career paths and finding other jobs. And I said, yeah, but what if, like, what if you're not looking for another job? Like, what if you want to be the person to make jobs for other people? And that I think, which you just said, there aren't that many conversations of people who have that mindset. I think as academics, we're often very institutionally trained. And so we're trained to find a spot as a cog within a much bigger machine um, and, to, and to be good at that, to be like the best cog ever and to be the hardest working cog in a bigger machine. And it takes, again, that sort of active imagination to say, well, what if I just build the machine myself? You know, what if I'm the one and, and instead of having cogs in that machine, I can create something that's collaborative or that functions in sort of different ways than the traditional organizational um, or institutional structures that we might be familiar with. So, so I understand where you're coming from hundred uh, percent. And then I, I, I also think too, and, and Holly's talked about this a lot before, um, which is the role of, of educators in creating the, the tools that we use, the, the role and function of educators yeah. participating in um, what then becomes the kind of machinery for knowledge production in in, in higher ed, but in education, broadly speaking, going forward. I mean, if we, if we don't do it, other people are doing it um, and, and we'll be left trying to remediate uh, bad, badly designed educational products. Um, and as you say, sort of sit back and critique and say, okay, well, this is what's, what's gone wrong. Um, but, but why play that secondary role if you can, if you can be, you know, the, the primary mm -hmm, driver. Mm -hmm. the, See, and, and, and I love that. Cause so this is like, this is kind of where I'm hoping that people kind of are getting interested in, or not that this, this has not been interesting to this point. Right. But like for this particular podcast, kind of going into like, here's like what I'm doing day to day. of like trying to build this thing. Cause like right now I, I know, like, so this is kind of getting, like, I know what I need to build. I know the model. I know the things I need to do but I need to get access to data first. And so right now I'm going in and talking to universities and I'm talking to them about this thing that I wanna build and that I wanna build it with them. And the reason I wanna build it with them is because I want to, I want to build it 
with them. I don't want to sell it to them. I want it to be something that they are invested in as well. And so I was, I was talking to this little tiny university in Washington. Um, and I was talking to them about the, the idea that I had about using um, automation and artificial intelligence to assess writing. And I got, oh, it was, it was kind of a beautiful, it was beautiful. I got all of the arguments that I was going to, as I was going to anticipate. And I was able to say, like, yeah, like, and he like, because they were talking about like decolonizing algorithms and like, like racial bias and these things. And like, kind of got onto a rant a little bit about like, there's been this like war against liberal education since Reagan. And I'm just like, wow, that's like, this is getting into a bit. Like, it's like, here's like, wouldn't you rather ask all of those questions as it's being built rather than when it's being deployed at your university? By the time it's being deployed at your university, so many decisions have already been made. And academics, like they, they have great ideas. They know, they know, they, they know the synergy that exists within the institution and the ecosystems that exist there and their bureaucracy that you have to work through to make things like this happen. And I love what you're saying, both of you, about um, collaboration and putting working together with the institution. I think that's one thing that definitely I've seen ed tech companies have to do is like listen more, talk less, <laughs> kind of like Hamilton, <laughs> you know, smile more, talk less or whatever Aaron Burr says in the, in the, in the show, um, because they're not going to, you're not going to get the buy-in if you don't listen to what they're saying. Um, and really we want, we want tools and I'm just speaking from the higher ed being perspective. We want tools that are easy to use, applicable, that help us, that help our learners, that focus on that. And things that don't do that, they're not really interested in. They don't want to. Okay. Yes. Like, and, and here, like, thank you for saying that. Cause that, that, that picked up a thread that I just, that I just lost. Cause like that with the, the higher, higher ed thing, like the, the thing that I wanted people to understand was that like, you're making, you're building these products for people in higher education. And right now you have a whole bunch of people leaving higher education who know how higher education work, hire them. Like they, they know what they're doing. Well, um, and that, that yes. point about like who, who know how higher education works. So that's a key point here because what we're talking about as well is like building a tool that is used by um, those within say the professional academy or, or software that's going to be used by educators. But typically in an institutional context, it's not the educators who pay for anything. So there's this weird dichotomy because typically, like if you build software outside of education, you're building for the user who pays for it. So you have your focus groups and you're, I'm gonna build the next best Instagram and whatever. And those are the people who are gonna pay for it. Whereas if you're building something that your expectation is that it will then be used, like, as you say, you're gonna build software and it is the future of English departments. And so presumably that future of English departments is gonna then have buy-in from institutions who will say, yes, this, this Eric software is going to be the English department tool of choice or replacement or you know, however that becomes manifest. And that's gonna need the buy-in. Yes, from the educators to use it, but from a number of levels of um, administrative layers that function in ways that those of us who have experience in higher ed 
know intimate. We know budget cycles and we know how things work and it's both top down and bottom up. And there are, and you can have, you know, arm wrestling fights at the departmental level before something then gets promoted up to the faculty level as a recommendation before it then goes, you know, and there are all of those kinds of things which are um, very atypical when you're thinking about building businesses. So typically when you think about building a business, whether it's software or otherwise, you're thinking about a user and a customer as being principally the same. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe you might have a kid and their parent, you know, if you're in toy industry or whatever, but really if you can make the kid want the toy badly enough, the kid will convince the parents. And so, you know, it, it, um, whereas in, in education, the tools that teachers and students or professors and students really love and want to use may or may not be the ones that um, administrators are willing to put money behind. And that um, is where, again, from the sort of higher, higher ed perspective, people who know how those industries work are invaluable if, if you are in um, ed tech or another education related um, industry, but yet wanting to sell into and wanting to work with um, higher ed, because it is, it is that weird, like, how do you, how do you, how do you make an education related argument when say the organization's KPIs may be about, um, enrollment numbers or, or monetary elements, or even, um, you know, employment rates upon graduation, those things, which are obviously related to educational success, but further down along the chain, it's mm-hmm. not that direct sort of causal connection. Um, and, and so, so you have your work cut out for you, dear Eric, in, yeah. in, in no, constructing no. this. Like, I, like, like, I wish I would, like, I'm like just giddy over here because like, like when, when people talk to me about, they want to start, like want to start a business. Um, like the first thing I say is like, all right, who's paying for it? And then who are you serving? Cause those are two different questions. Like, and the thing that like, so for me, it's going to be universities, right? Universities and maybe like some state governments, right? They're like, they're paying for the software, but my end users, like the people who I am serving are students and teachers. And so now it becomes, it becomes my goal, right? To create a product that solves pain points at the administrative level that empowers students to learn in the classroom. And that for me is like, well, that's easy. Kind of like, no, 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 like, like it's going to be incredibly hard, but like, I, I, I think like, that's why I felt confident about starting this is that I feel like I can go forward and understand what I need to do. Um, I went to, as part of my, my previous position um, in an ed tech company, I went to a, um, a conference in DC this past August with, it was like an invite only 50 people um, of college presidents and provosts, like decision makers were in the audience, 50 people. Very then, fancy of you, by the way. Oh, I know. I, I, I was there, like rubbing shoulders. Drink, I was like, drinking with I, your binky out. Yeah, I was like, I do not, <laughs> I do not belong here. But I was there, right? And I was just like rubbing shoulders and just kind of. And it was like this is so much fun, and it was the most amazing thing to see this group of people go behind closed doors, because these are university presidents who they have to be the stalwart person at the, the, like, we're going forward. We're optimistic. Despite COVID, we're going to, we're going to make it and just go behind closed doors and see them like break down was powerful. And in that meeting, I learned something very, very important that every university has 
two things on the top of their head. One, how can we do more with less? We need to serve more students with fewer resources. How do we do that? Number two, somehow data is the key. We don't know what it is, but we know that the key to that is data. And for me, my background, right? My, my dissertation research was on the ethical use of big data, right? My, my job in an ed tech company, I, I dealt with student produced data, right? Like student writing. And I can just like see all these like moving parts. And like, I think it's going to work over this next 12 episodes, like over this next year. Um, but I'm so excited for this challenge because it's, it's something that I look at and I think that's a mountain I want to climb. Um, and you're very much smarter than I was when I started to climb the mountain, because uh, as you say, you know, the, the, the people who use it, the people who pay for it, you know, I, I hadn't made that distinction when we started SA Jack. I was like, well, we're, we're building the academic writing software that we wish our students had. I mean, in, in a nutshell, it's sort of smart templating on steroids. So it you know helps students know where to put um, the things that they need to in order to write a cogent argument, um, adhering to the standards of an Anglo-American style thesis-driven uh, essay format. Um, and we had, you know, as, as do you, there were all these sort of ethical principles, you know, we weren't going to give content, we weren't going to give them answers. Or, and so when we started to show our early prototype, we were showing it to professors and academics and students, and they loved it. You know, mm -hmm. we had various kinds of focus groups, we had hundreds and then thousands of students and, you know, um, both at high school and at college and university and professors using it, they all loved it. Then we started the, okay, now we have to start monetizing this thing because, you know, I can't just keep it going at, you know, as a, hey, let's, let's build it and they will come. As come much before. as we like to do stuff for free in education, there yes. has to be a cutoff point. There, that, that's exactly. actually something I want to talk about in another episode is like, when do you stop doing stuff for free? <laughs> Because I think a lot of people feel like when they do a startup, they have to do so much for free before they start to monetize things. So we'll save that for a later date. That's well, a little yeah. uh, trailer for them. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, so you foreshadowed what is, you know, to use the language of an English yes. professor, you foreshadowed what is coming next. But but it, yeah, absolutely. And, and And again, I made like every mistake in the book by by sort of doing too much for free and then only laterally being like, oh, okay, so what is... You know, what is that message? You know, as you say, Eric, those, those um, presidents are concerned about serving more with less and using data to do it. And how do you um, articulate what you're doing in that kind of parlance? And if, and, and not just in a fake way, but like, really, is that what you're doing? Is that the value proposition that you, that you offer? And for us with, with SA Jack, that was in some ways, it was a bit of a stretch um, because we could do more with less for sure with the software, but really what SA Jack did and continues to do to this day is it produces better writing. It produces better writing outcomes for students. Um, and that is a laudable and amazing goal, but it is hard to monetize that institutionally when institutions are um, are focused on, they have other pressures, let's just say. Mm -hmm. And so that was always a bit of an uphill battle. So I commend you 
for having that clarity of insight now at the beginning when you're you're starting your mountain climb to be like, okay, um, I already know that I need to have sort of tools in my mountain climbing backpack to, to tackle this particular. Whereas for me, I was like, I got to that obstacle halfway up the mountain and I was like, oh, I do not have crampons for this. I'm screwed. See, and like, I... I think, I think that there's something that's very, that's really important um, to acknowledge here. Cause I like the thing that I want to build, I think is very similar. It's different, but very similar to, to what you're building as far as like using software to help students write better. Um, and I think so. And so in rhetoric, there's this concept called Kairos, right? Like the timing of a thing. And I remember, I remember this, this YouTube, this, this guy, not on YouTube, this guy I met on LinkedIn and I was watching one of the videos he made and he said, he said, hear me now, there will be millionaires and billionaires made because of this pandemic. And I, and I think that like my go-to-market strategy is one that embraces an English apocalypse, right? An English department apocalypse. Like it is, and it's, it's one that, that, that people are facing right now. I just read it in the news that I think it was, is Purdue, is fa- their English department is facing English cuts people are going to be losing their jobs and we're not going to know what to do. And, and I want to like intentionally create a piece of software that will replace a labor cost, not to replace a labor cost, but because labor is going to be lost and we need to be able to help continue to serve our students. And I think that we can actually teach them better than the way that we're doing now with fewer people and that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. And it's a hard pill to preach. Um, but I'm honestly like, it's, it's to the point, like you, like faculty can either, you know, continue to draw salaries um, or, or the university can shut down and stop serving students altogether. And I want, I, I want to create a company and I think that I'm going to do this that will that will save colleges from having to close down. I think that that's how much of an impact this can have. And that's super because because yeah. because I'm very intentionally saying this is not just another cost you're going to be incurring. I am going to be able to replace a cost that you have. Yeah. And I think too, I mean partly so what you're saying is is incredibly sort of inspirational in terms of um a bit of a rescue effort to to sort of dying colleges um, but also what I'm hearing too is that kind of passionate commitment to empowering students to be able to write well and of course if you can write well you can think well if you can think well you can live well you know there are all of these abilities that go beyond um, simply being able to articulate oneself well uh, in in academic parlance, you know, if you can string together a logically coherent argument and and weigh out facts and articulate that, you know, then you also have power over the world in which you find yourself where we're being buffered on every side by fake news and and all kinds of um, information that we then need to weed through and evaluate. And the more that we have the skills and tools to write out that analytical evaluation, the more that we internalize those skills and are able to evaluate and analyze the world in which we live and and are less likely to be 
victims of all of the uh, ridiculousness that that often surrounds us in in our sort of contemporary world. And so, you know, you're offering kind of a rescue mission to um, embattled institutions, but also a rescue mission really to uh, the ability to think critically itself, which is is very much in danger of being lost. I mean, I, I feel for students these days because on the one hand, they have access to information that, you know, I as a young person would have killed to have access to uh, back in the day, but they don't necessarily, but because it's always come to them, you know, these students have always had information fed to them, appearing on their phones and appearing in front of them that they haven't had to go and like dig through a card catalog to find a (laughs) book in a library, you know, like that's that, that desire to quest after something that you have to work really hard for some bit of information you know they can watch a movie and if they forget the name of the actor they can look it up in you know a split second and so because of that access to information it's a double-edged sword it's amazing on the one hand but it can be really hard to go through and, and weed through and evaluate the quality of that information that's so readily available and and you know your aspiration is to say like okay i'm going to build something that that's going to make sure that that's possible and plausible going forward for this generation of students. Yeah, I, I think, uh, well, I, th- I thank you for summing it in that way. That, that makes you feel really good. Um, I, I, I think that it's just, there's, it's a completely different skill set now. Um, Cause before, like I was thinking about what you were saying, like before, like I was trained on how, to find information. Now we need to train students on how to filter information. Um, and it's a, it's a completely different set. Um, and I, and like, that's like, one of the things that I think that all English teachers feel is that like, I wish you'd like, you should be applying these principles in all of your classes. Um, well, that's a difficult thing to do, especially when you're not in that English class anymore. But if you had a piece of software, that helped you assess your writing in all of your classes, like embedded those questions about writing and about critical thinking into what you're doing, then we can also give up the false notion somehow that English departments have a monopoly on the critical thinking um, when, when we don't, right? Uh, and so I, I'm just, I am so excited to be moving forward with the both of you on this and to be able to feel rejuvenated myself. Cause I think that like, I hear all those stories on other podcasts about uh, like on, on Guy Raz's, like how I built this, like how, like, you know, they like took 10 years of, of like, of a grind and realizing that I'm at the beginning of, of a grind. Um, but to have these episodes scheduled out is, is really helpful for me. And so I'm really, really grateful. Um, and for our listeners too, for like sharing this journey. Um, and I hope that it's, it's a good one. Well, and I think too, like, I mean, what we're talking about today is really like the kernel of what gets it started. And, and I, and I think that's really appropriate as a first episode, because, you know, it starts with an idea, a vision, a, you know, commitment, uh, uh, an, uh, a notion of how you can make the world a better place or, you know, like, or, or, or maybe it just starts with purely monetary incentives or whatever the, the kernel of an idea is that's at the root of starting a business, you know, today we've now talked sort of around what it is that is fueling you as you embark on this journey. But I think for everybody listening, 
I mean, if you're thinking about starting a business, whether it's a software business or, or, or a podcast or a consulting company, you know, there has to be some kind of driving reason. What is the vision? What is, what is it that then uh, when, when, when you have the down days, what is it that you'll cling to, to get you through those down days? Cause you know, they're coming. Yeah, they're they're that that part I can tell you. I'll, yeah. I'll cheerlead. They're you part of the process go, for yeah, sure. Absolutely, <laughs> they're a huge part of that process for sure. And I like it that you all are kind of like I was going to say. What do you want people to take away from this episode? Because you both shared your stories about your visions. Obviously, Lindy, you're in a much different place than Eric is in, in his journey. You guys have connected and developed the sort of relationship so that you can kind of mentor him through or help him through some of the things that you've experienced. But also on the other side of that is the fact that the listeners who are actually thinking about this, I always tell myself, when I think about it more than five times, I need to pay attention. When I'm laying in bed at night and the same thoughts going through my head, I need to pay attention to what my intuition is telling me or my instinct is telling me, because that means something needs to change or I need to move somewhere. I need to pivot or I need to talk to somebody um, depending upon the situation. So that's one of the things that makes me, you know, one of the reasons I started this podcast is to highlight the stories, but also people need to hear like, starting a business you see people at the success the finish line but going through it is something else it's traumatizing it's taxing it's exciting it's invigorating there's lots of positives about it you meet people but also like you know what what is the essence of this first you know episode what do you want people to take away um for me I'll, um and then lindy i'd be really interested to hear what you had to say um, I was having a conversation with another mentor person of mine, uh, his name's Jason. And I was, cause the hardest thing about all of this is that you have so many ideas. You can go in so many different directions, but then you need to realize that like that direction requires hundreds of hours of labor to do that. Um, and so the thing that he told me, and that has really been a focal point, like almost, I tell myself every day, this come this mantra is to focus on the next inch and the horizon. Anything that happens in the between is something you don't need to worry about right now. You need to just like, what is that beautiful goal that you have that you were talking about, Holly, that thing that's keeping you up at night? Like, what does it look like? And then what is the very next thing that you need to do to accomplish that? Um, and that's been really helpful for me to just really like, it has helped me to stay or to attempt to stay laser focused on the, the next actionable thing that I need to do. Uh, to get to that horizon. Yeah, and I think I, I really like that that image, you know, the sort of next inch and then the horizon. I always think of it in terms of, you know, instead of needing a, a map that outlines exactly, you know, like your Google Maps, you know, turn left here, turn, you need a compass. And so you, you kind of know you're going to that horizon and you've got your compass, which is sort of leading you to your true north. Um, but how you get there is going to be different depending upon the terrain. So, you know, sometimes you'll go around a bit and sometimes you'll go up a bit and sometimes, you know, you may go a bit longer and sometimes it's, it's straight through the bush. And so I think um, what I hope people get out of today's episode is the starting of that journey 
and and that sense that you're not alone if this is something you're thinking about that sense that uh you know as as eric um is kind of known for that kind of candor and authenticity that will will be here to do some truth talking uh because as you say holly like we often we especially in software we hear stories about you know series a fundraise at whatever valuation and low and people think like software ceos are you know live in the lap of luxury and drinking champagne it's like no. you're, you're not sitting in like a hotel like yeah. you know with your crystal yeah. wine i you know I, you know funny funny yeah. or not you know and <laughs> and uh and and like eric you know there were times where i was like living in my parents house and you know like it just and and that's and and those unsexy but very real and still very rewarding parts of the journey I think are worth knowing and worth sharing um they're worth commiserating over and they're also worth celebrating and I hope that that's kind of what these episodes can bring to the fore as well as some practical like here's how you do this here's how you do this here's how you do this um and so so today is kind of a hey, this is the start of the journey. Hopefully you like us enough to join uh, and trust us enough to join us uh, on the rest of the journey and, and see where it takes us, um, you know, and, and learn some lessons, have some fun, but also get that sense of, of community. If these are things that are keeping you up late at night that you're going to, you know, be revisiting over five times. Right. That's a nice wrap. That's a, definitely a nice wrap up of what, um, I was getting, I'm getting out of the conversation, um, just listening to you both talk about this, because this is not my area of expertise by any means. And I know the audience will appreciate just the transparency that you're both bringing to the table in these episodes. Eric, anything else you want to add wrapping things up? I just thank you so much, both of you, for being a part of this. Um, I, I said at the beginning of this episode, before we started, that I was really struggling um, and dealing with that grind. Um, and, and I think this is, this is something that uh, is very selfish of me. And I'm, thank you for, for letting me uh, be a part of this. And, and thank you for being a part of it as well. Absolutely. And for our listeners for tuning in. Thank you. I, I really, it, it means a lot to me. Awesome. Well, one down, 11 to go. So get ready, strap in, and away we go. You've been listening to another episode of Ed Up Ed Tech with your host, Holly Owens. You can follow Holly on LinkedIn. You can also visit her website at jollyholly.me to find out more about what she's up to. Please head to Apple or wherever you download your podcast content and leave us a rating, review, and please subscribe to be notified of future episodes. This has been another incredible episode of Ed Up Ed Tech with your host, Holly Owens. <laughs>